having a competitive advantage is very important. And people, especially in certain markets, they switch vendors like they switch clothes. You cannot afford to be late to the game. And you always have to be proactive in how you're thinking about the company and where they're at and what they need and what they don't need. Because if you're not, A, they're not getting the value that they need from you. B, you might have missed something that's critical to the renewal, let alone selling them even more. And C, they might even be thinking or looking at a competitor right now and not even telling you. And so that layer of artificial intelligence that's catered to my business, our sales cycles, our products, and our triggers or red flags and green flags in conversations is invaluable. Welcome, everybody, to the fourth episode of the Dale and Masha Show. I'm Dale, and this is the lovely Masha. Hi, y'all. Woo! Yeah, so I'm really excited. This is our fourth episode, and not only is four my favorite number, but we have a special guest tonight, someone very near and dear to the hearts of the whole Glow Stick team. We have all worked with him to essentially make Glow Stick what it is today. He's an incredible example of a sales leader and an account manager who they should strive to be, really. Mm. Everybody welcome. Aaron Spike. <laughs> that was an intro. Pumping my tires going wow. Just pumping them Gassing up. Gassing me up, always. yeah. Love it. Thank you. Setting Happy us up to be for here. a good episode. Yeah. So thanks for coming on the show. Aaron, why don't you start off by just telling us a little bit about yourself. How'd you get into tech? What about it intrigued you? Sure. Um, so... Going all the way back uh, to university, I've always been kind of like a tinkerer and tech-oriented person. Music's a very big part of my life. I've always loved live music. And at the time, we really had a plethora of really amazing artists coming through um, London. There was sort of like a circuit that was going on. And I was very big into that scene at the time. Um, And I had started... um, Raver. Yeah. yeah, well, sort of, yeah. Um, I had started essentially like uh, blogging about the concerts um, that were happening in London. I got to know a lot of the promoters um, and it really sort of took off. Um, and I would cut together these sort of like recap videos and and songs and post them on YouTube and do like a, a little kind of like recap post of these concerts. And that just sort of evolved into... Um, a need that promoters were asking me for, which was like live streaming the shows and broadcasting them. Um, And at the time I was doing, I had an internship at Google and I had access to um, what is now YouTube Live and back then was Google Plus Live Video or something. It had like a weird name and it was just kind of getting off the ground. And so um, I was broadcasting through this channel and it really took off. And for the next couple of years, I went on tour with like a couple of artists and I was live streaming shows for them. And so that was like my first kind of like business. Uh, That's in tech. amazing. Um, I wonder if I, I'm in any of those videos because I used to party in, at Fanshawe all the time. <laughs> you probably were. Um, oh boy. And, <laughs> yeah. So I ended up, I ended up selling that company. And then when I was doing my master's, um, I met who is someone uh, who is now a very good friend of mine. His name is Vlad. 
Um, his tech expertise was much greater than mine, especially on the, the nuts and bolts side of things. We started a company called Drone On and we were doing uh, aerial photography, videography, and live streaming. You know, that was sort of like my big tech, more tech oriented or like more disruptive tech oriented kind of like splash. And when I knew that like, that's really what I love to do. Um, compliance and stuff got crazy. And, you know, living in Canada, you can really only fly drones for the most part uh, half of the year. And so I knew that I was going to have to do something a little bit more uh, nine to five eventually grow up a little bit. Um, and so I ended up working for a company, a friend of mine had started an e-commerce business called Dbrand. Um, very big company now. Uh, they make cell phone skins um, and all sorts of like uh, computer accessory skins. Um, I helped build that company from when I got there about like 10, 20 orders a day to when I left, there was over a thousand. So I was essentially a phone dealer for a, pre a period of time. Um, but I helped run the operations of that company, helped grow it. It was an amazing experience, but um, it didn't scratch my sort of disruptive tech itch. Um, and so after a couple of years, um, I sold my shares and I wanted to get into um, something to do with food tech. So my grandfather my grandfather owned a grocery store and was a butcher. Um, I've always kind of like understood the issues of food scarcity, especially living in Canada. For those who don't know, essentially we are one big snowstorm away from losing truck routes. And if that happens, we are all going to starve in essentially three to four days. That's how reliant most of Southern Ontario and Canada is on, on food importing. I bet um, Dale, you know a lot about that. Being yeah, in we can more we can geek out on setting. this Dale. Totally, um, yeah. So yeah, I, I got like very enamored with um, disruptive tech for like food and and food production. And what I really wanted to get into, and what I really got enamored with, was lab grown meat. Unfortunately, I didn't have a degree in molecular biology, um, and at the time that that whole world, which is, it still is somewhat in its infancy, but it was really in its infancy. I think there was like one or two companies that were doing it. One was in the UK and one was in Southern Texas. And, you know, I was like, okay, that's a little bit uh, too much of not a stretch yet. for me. Yeah. And so, yeah, not yet. So what I did kind of stumble upon was, was indoor farming and vertical farming and, and hydroponic farming. So I found a company that was building farms inside of purpose-built shipping containers and instead of having the racks being horizontal, they were doing it vertically, which allowed you to grow volumetrically so you could grow more. I uh, ended up being the first employee at a startup called Modular Farms, probably one of the biggest passion projects and businesses that was like closest to my heart. We ended up having to sell the company and I'm still proud that we did do a joint venture with in Australia. The company is still thriving there as well as in Singapore. But yeah, after three awesome. years, I had to step away from that. And then, you know, by that time I was dating my now wife for a while and she was like enough with the early stage startups, you know, we, <laughs> we're going to build a family. Let's uh, get something a little bit more uh, normal for you. Um, at the time I was like, all right, if I'm going to stay in the mindset of staying in tech and, and disruptive tech, you know, maybe I'll look into, into SaaS mm -hmm. and um, I gravitated towards sales. I've always gravitated towards sales. Uh, ended up working at an F&B white label app company called Smooth Commerce because it was sort of in the same world that I was already dealing with. And then from there, uh, I had a bunch of friends at Ada. I liked what they were doing. It was a lot more disruptive than what I was doing at uh, at Smooth Commerce and uh, ended up at Ada. And then from there, went to Yapo. So it's uh, I've been in SaaS now for about close to 10 years and before that, entrepreneurial stuff. But uh, I do aspire to go back to 
early stage stuff and and build something <laughs> myself one day. But uh, yeah, that's sort of my Ooh. journey in tech. Right on. Love taking that. notes Thank here. You. Taking notes. <laughs> yeah, it's fascinating. Yeah. You and Masha have known each other for quite some time now. Like, and I remember I met you back on like my fourth day of being hired at Glowstick, and I was like, "Oh my god, what are these people talking about?" <laughs> um, but I'm curious as to what made you want to engage with the Glowstick team at such an early stage. Like, what's the story? What's the story there? I think for me, I was very excited at the prospect of building a company that solved a problem in post-sales because I think it's something that post-sales teams, especially over the last, let's call it God knows how long in SaaS, um, until more recently have sort of been the FedEx kid of the sales organization. Um, everyone thought our job is very easy. Um, you know, the A's on the pre-sales side always get, you know, the accolades and the fireworks. Um, but I think it was something where I was like, okay, finally, someone is focusing on the things that the post-sales team needs um, and that can help prop up the post-sales reps as well as the CS team. And it was a lot of what, you know, I, I, I essentially, I saw the problem and I was living the problem every day. And there was a lot of manual effort that was being taken in order to do this. And it was also at a time where ADA started to scale rapidly. You know, we had hundred percent year over year growth for all of the time that I was there. And we went from having a pod system where I was working with, you know, three yes reps uh, week in and week out on the same accounts, which, you know, everyone loves, everyone loves being a pod system, but inevitably it, it breaks um, and you can't prioritize things or meet and collaborate as easily, especially when your account list grows from like 30 to a hundred. Um, and it just like everything you guys were thinking about and focusing on just made so much sense to me. Um, and I wanted to help kind of steer that as much as I could with the knowledge that I have, I had. So, you know, I've been a glow stick fan since day one and, um, I'm still, still am. And I think it's sort of like a light bulb went off or a glow stick went off in my head, uh, when I spoke to Masha for the first time. <laughs> and, um, I just got really excited about the prospect of, you know, this type of technology being applied and, I'm not going to lie. Like, I think even last night I had some new ideas that I wanted to float by Masha, um, which I probably <laughs> will, I'll text you about later. But um, I think it's a very underserved problem and an underserved part of the SaaS ecosystem and one that needs to be focused on more and more where AI is going to significantly help streamline a lot of things. This is what I love about working with Aaron is that he just comes up with new ideas and is brimming with them all the time and like does not hold back. And also just to circle back on what you said about, you know, initially being kind of critical or maybe like providing constructive feedback, that's like the best thing for an early stage team. So, you know, if anybody listening is like, thinking about advising an early stage startup or has some kind of a potential to talk to a founder, like, please, please don't blow sunshine up our butts. It is not helpful. Like bring the expertise that you have, especially if, you know, as Aaron said, you're living the problem, bring that forward and tell us where we're messing up so that we don't have to, you know, mess up 10 more times with the wider market and the less friendly market potentially before we find it out. Right. So, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I also had, listen, I, I had a vested interest in, in seeing it be something that I can actually use properly on like a day-to-day -day basis. So, right. um, it, it was an easy decision for me to, uh, 
to not hold back. So true. And it makes sense too, because you have, you know, been in so many different startups as well. So it would make sense that you're, you would gravitate towards kind of um, that environment as well too. For sure. Um, Aaron, as a leader, what are some of the ways that you have enabled your team to excel. I know one of the things that we talked about before, just for some context, is like, Aaron, how you helped me with, mm. you know, as we said, like, there's that high level kind of more strategic stuff where we've discussed, hey, okay, how do we take this to market? What is the messaging? What is the fit? What is the value prop? But then again, to your ability to drill down, we've also had very deep discussions about specific deals, right? And you've shown me like you've kind of sh shown the light for me on sales methodologies that I, as like a baby seller, um, had little exposure to, and you really showed me how to apply it. So I'm thinking here of like the whole MedPick methodology, but also command of the message. I don't know, you've got like really cool ways to apply this, but also you've definitely enabled your team to do that. So maybe if there's like some specific tips or sort of ways to think about it, how to actually help the team excel. Again, in this environment, right? Tons of accounts, always everybody's breathing down each other's necks for like forecasting, et cetera. So like, how did you, you know, what are some of the things that you've done to kind of enable your team to excel in that? And yeah, again, that's come, a... come, wait, come closer. It just went out again. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> back okay. and back. Um, yeah, I mean, well, first of all, you're not a baby seller. Like I want to put this out there, you know, I've seen Musha's calls now um, for someone that started as a designer. She's an excellent salesperson. She's so um, good. She's got great Appreciate chops. Appreciate both um, of you. <laughs> but honestly, if I could drill it down to one word, it would be focus, especially in post sales, especially for teams that um, have a high uh, book of business or a large book of business um, and high velocity sales cycles. Focus is everything. Um, and I think that's kind of my biggest the biggest thing that I try to impart on people that I either manage or that I work with, especially as account managers, you cannot waste your time. And I, there's a, a few different kind of like reasons behind that. But like the most important is that you have to be able to very quickly from the first call, understand what is the pain that this person is trying to solve? Why can you solve the pain? Um, and is it worth both of your time? to continue having this conversation and to invest in a solution. Um, I think f finding focus is a thing that you can do through two things. One is very good discovery. Like I kind of just mentioned, that first call to me is where you should know if you're going to win or lose the deal by the end of the call. You should know why you're going to win or lose the deal by the end of the call. Um, and you should have an understanding of what the impact of your solution is going to be on the person you're talking to, on their department, and on the company in general. And so, you know, I've been lucky enough to have formal training in, in MedPIC and in Command of the Message over the years. And all of it kind of just does and points to the same thing, which is how do you very quickly actually disqualify an opportunity? And I think it's not too dissimilar for what pre-sales people are trained on, but I think the difference is that you have to talk to these people again over and over again, regardless if they're buying something from you. And if 
you are a good account manager. You have focused on specific companies within your book for specific reasons, um, which we can you know get into in a little more detail, but you're building a relationship with these people that's based off of trust and that's based off of them seeing you as an advisor and someone that almost works for them to a certain degree, especially if you work for a company that's solving a large problem for them. Um, and if you can't understand what you're selling to them and what the impact is going to be and why they need to listen to you and why they should listen to you about this, then there's no point. And so you have to get out of the mindset of what I like to call happy years in sales, especially in account management, which is, you know, a CSM or someone or someone mentions something and you're like, oh, great, I can sell them this. And then you just go straight into the motion. In a good discovery call, you shouldn't even be talking about yourself, the company or your product at all. It should just be a deep dive into like what's going on with them. What problems do they have? What are they trying to solve? And then if something clicks to you and you can explain it, why this is going to make an impact, then great. Let's talk about it. But having the mindset of actually trying to go through your book and think about why you cannot sell to these people or why you shouldn't sell to these people, I often find to be more valuable because then it'll really isolate the people that you should be selling to and why and make your entire sales pitch easier and a way in which when you do sell them something, it's successful and you can have that win-win relationship for a long time. I right. think if we can double click on that, I would love to, um, because, you know, we've always talked about how there is such a big difference between the pre-sales kind of approach or like the new business kind of approach, right? Net new, where the focus really is on the transaction. And a lot of the things that you say, well, likely all the things that you say about the discovery piece and figuring out why you know they're not going to buy and all those things still very much apply, obviously, across the board. But what in your mind is kind of the big difference between the approach that like a new seller would take versus a post-sales kind of account manager? Like what is the big thing that, you know, is quite different in that. I like, I'm worried to say something that's going to bite me, but I think Love the biggest, the, the biggest difference is there's two. One is the responsibility of owning that relationship in the long run. And the second is that the veil has been lifted already for the most part. Like, unless you're selling someone something that like just got out of uh, implementation or is even in like implementation right now. And they think of something else that they want to purchase. Like a lot of my sales are, you know, a year, two years after a company has already been working with the company that I'm working with. And a lot of them are experts on the product far more than I might be because they're in there every day and they have their hands on it. And you cannot sell snake oil to a certain degree. And there's no pizzazz that you can waft in front of them while they're eager to see a solution that they haven't implemented yet. And I think that's one of the biggest differences. Like, you know, I've seen and watched a lot of videos from AEs and, you know, uh, my team at Yapo and where I've been, you know, done sales in the past, some account managers work on new sales and expansions. And I think in the pre-sales motion, you have people that are excited to buy, they have a budget, they haven't solved the problem that they're dealing with yet. And they're just trying to look for the person that's going to do it best. In a post-sales environment, they've already picked you. 
you've been working with them. They've been working with other people on your team. They've seen your software. They know the bugs. They've logged them. They've got issues already. They might be happy. They might be unhappy. These are all factors that you have to take into account when you're going to pitch them on something um, and even how you're going to prioritize them within your book. And I think you cannot whitewash them the way that you can in pre-sales. There's no smoke and mirrors anymore. Um, and because of that, you have to take a much more nuanced and just a hu more human approach to it because you can't hide and you can't run. Um, as a pre-sales person, you can sell them on something that doesn't exist. You can talk about features that are in development that might not ever hit the roadmap. I can do that in post-sales too, but I'm going to have to have a bi-weekly or a QBR with this person in a month or two months from now, and they're going to ask where that feature is and what's going on. And so retention becomes something that you always have to keep in mind. Whereas pre-sales folks don't really care about that. They should, let's not get this twisted, but um, they don't have to care about it as much. They can sell the dream. I have to help implement the dream, measure the dream, and then make sure that everything is hunky-dory so that there's an opportunity to grow them within the business by giving them more things that are going to build on the success that they've already had. And it really, it takes a village to do that. And, you know, Masha, we've spoken about this a lot. AMs cannot operate in a silo the way that AEs can. Um, we have to work with product. We have to work with the CS team. We have to work with the PS team. There has to be a community of people that are seeing and enabling success with the client in order for me to do my job. Um, at the end of the day. Otherwise, I'm just a glorified renewals manager and negotiator. Yeah, it really seems like the kind of key focus there is on the fact that in the initial cycle, you're selling the dream, but in the sort of follow-on cycles, whether it be renewal or expansion, you're kind of needing the dream to have come true to some extent to sell the next, and it can't even really be a dream to your point because you're having these continuous check-ins, right? I think what I'm super curious about is we've had a lot of conversations with AMs who are completely overwhelmed by the number of accounts that they have to manage. I just spoke to somebody yesterday who said they have 144 accounts that they have to manage. And this is not a, you know, rinky dink like SMB sale. These are, you know, over 10K, over 15K, over 20K sales. So they're not, you know, B2C kind of situations. Um, but when their manager asks them, hey, what's going on with this account? Their default answer is kind of like, oh, I don't know, right? Like most of the time, I don't know. And uh, there is this concept of Dunbar's number, right? That's like 150 people that any one person can sort of develop any sort of meaningful relationship with in their lives, right? And I think like probably technology has skewed that a fair amount now, but what do you think that Dunbar number is for the number of accounts an AM can realistically, meaningfully develop a relationship with that is, you know, not just kind of pop in and out as a glorified renewals manager. Hey, I'm here for commercials. Oh, there's nothing going on here. Okay, I'm out. And most of the time they're being ignored. I think it's a bit of a, a complex answer because it also depends on what the account manager's role is within the customer engagement life cycle. You know, are there CS people that are handling the day-to-day? -day? Are they responsible for 
the renewal? Are they responsible for showing the customer value? Are they running QBRs or are they just strictly popping in when there's an opportunity and more of a commercially minded person that doesn't own the relationship? You know, what are the swim lanes between the AM and the CSM at this specific company? What is the nature of the product? Is it very technical? Does it require a lot of handholding? Does it require a high level of relationship or is it more kind of like a, a do-it-yourself um, type product? I think it, 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 it very much varies depending on the company, the setup of the company internally in post-sales and the nature of the product. However, in my experience, I'll say that this is where the focus comes into play. You can have, I've had 150 accounts under my book at a company like Ada with a very technical product that requires a lot of one-to-one with stakeholders. And it's a technology that's very at the forefront of things from an AI perspective that you have to be a thought leader and keeping them up to date on what's going on in the industry. And so you have to be able to cut down that list. And so it's really, you know, the question that you brought up, Masha, of like a manager going and saying, what's going on with this account? I would take a step back. And if I was that manager, I would say, is this one of your A accounts? Is this a B account? Why are you spending so much time on the account? Why are you not spending so much time on this account? You're not going to, everyone's book is going to be divided into accounts that, as I've kind of like shown you, are what I deem like an A, B, C, or a D account. And I think the most important job for an account manager is to always know on a daily basis and be updating, why am I talking to the people that I'm talking to? Who are the most important customers that I should be talking to? What is the nature of the conversations with these customers? Are they customers I know are not going to purchase more, but are very valuable to the business and I want to retain them? Are they customers that have a small ACV today, but have the potential to grow significantly? And how am I strategizing for that? Uh, the, the long and, and short answer is that... Um, it really varies and it just depends on the threshold of how many of those accounts within your larger book of business actually require the TLC um, on a day-to-day basis to build that relationship that you need for the company to continue to A, serve, but B, thrive. So I think if we had to come up with Dunbar's number, I don't think that an account manager should be managing more than you know, like a hundred accounts, I think is a lot, but it depends on the nature of the business. Like, you know, Yapo, our mid-market account teams have, you know, 300 accounts, but they're very much not a part of the day-to-day relationship with clients. And they're very strictly commercially oriented. Whereas my team, the key team, much smaller book, but much bigger clients. Um, at Ada, I'd say we had a mixed bag and that's where like that number can, if it's ballooning past like a hundred, you might want to hire another AM and and bring it back down to like 40 or 50, but it it really just depends, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the prioritization there of segmenting your accounts into different kind of buckets of being able to be like, okay, I have my A people, I have my B people. Like how do people usually go about doing that? Like how are how can, how, how do you do that? (laughs) Yeah, there's different like ways or there's different, um, there's different variables that you can use to plot it. I say the most simple one, which is the one that we followed at Ada um, is picture, you know, you've got a four quadrant chart on the Y axis would be uh, the potential revenue of an account. And on the X axis would be the current revenue 
of the account. And then what you want to do is get an understanding of what is your cutoffs for each one to separate those different zones. So let's say at ADA, our cutoff for um, separating what would be a B and an A account or a D and a C account in terms of current revenue would be 75K in ACV. And let's say on the y-axis in potential revenue, it would be, I don't know, let's call it 75K as well. So this exercise forces you to really deep dive into each account and do a very detailed account planning and account plan for each one of them to the CS team, understand the health of the account, understand the business, understand why they bought your software in the first place. How are they utilizing it? What's their return? Where is the company going? What are their goals? Um, how can you fit into those goals? And from there, you know, you fill out a white space sheet to get an understanding of what products you might be able to sell them. And, and, and then you can start plotting what their potential revenue could be um, and what their current revenue currently is. And the whole goal, your A accounts are the ones that have a very high potential revenue and a very high current revenue. These are the, the ones that you want to focus on wholeheartedly. You want to be a part of every meeting that you can. You want to be doing relationship mapping. You want to understand everything that's going on in that organization. You want to be visiting them. You want to be in those accounts like crazy. And that's why you know, if I'm asking my reps, what's going on with your A accounts, that's what I want to know. Right. Um, and then on the flip side, if you go under A, you'll have your C accounts. These are the accounts that spend a lot today, but don't have an opportunity to spend more in the future, maybe because <clears throat> they've purchased a lot of products from you already and they've run out of things, you've run out of things to sell them um, or, you know, business might be tough. Um, whatever factors, these are the accounts that you want to protect. These are ones that from a retention standpoint, you want to keep around. Um, and obviously that the CS team is going to be really leaning on you as much as possible for, uh, to help with, again, this will depend on whether the account manager owns renewals, how involved they are on the day-to-day -day of the accounts, but these are your protect <coughs> accounts, your B accounts, ones that are not paying as much today, but have the potential to pay a lot in the future. These are your growth accounts. Um, and the D accounts are ones that don't pay a lot today and don't have the potential to pay a lot in the future. And the whole goal is to move accounts from B to A, from C to A, from D to C, or from D to B. Um, <clears throat> and so this exercise is something that you can't just do once. You do it once to set everything up. And then this needs to become a living and breathing chart that not just you, but your manager, the CRO, the CS team, everyone can look at it and be in full understanding of why this account is in this quadrant and be allocating resources and building strategy accordingly so that people can get behind, you know, okay, these are the products that we're going to be selling to this account. This is the strategy that we have to retain this C account. Um, and this is why something like Glowstick is so important because to manage that on a weekly basis with all of the other stuff that you have to do within your job description is very tedious. It's a lot of manual effort. Mm -hmm. And there hasn't been a lot of companies that have developed software to automate this and make it a very easy process where you can draw things from your CRM to update those fields, build out a white space that's dynamic, that affects that account segmentation. This is like the bread and butter of the job that is completely manual for us. And it's a huge pain, which is why I got so excited about Glowstick when, when I bought it. Well, and Aaron, how realistic, like, 
I don't want to call BS or whatever, but like how realistic is it for an account manager who owns a hundred accounts to be able to do that exercise in a, in a that is meaningful because to your point, this is changing all the time, right? Like, and if, especially in this market environment, it's extremely volatile. Like things are changing very quickly. So doing it like once a year feels almost as good as not doing it at all because, you know, it's outdated within, I mean, at most a quarter, right? Like maybe even within a month. So how realistic is it? Like how, how in experience from what you've seen, how much are AM teams actually doing this versus just being super reactive and trying to, you know, work with the hand raisers and all those kinds of things, right? I think it's it's the latter because that's the easier route. And to your right. point, like if you have a huge book of business and you're working with a whole bunch of different CSMs, it becomes very difficult. I think the good organizations are ones that are at the very least, if they're not doing account segmentation or white space maps, they're doing account plans and they're updating them, let's say every quarter. Um, but still, even so, you can only focus on so many accounts in a session where you're with the whole CS team. Uh, yeah, it's it's very it's very difficult and it requires a lot of extra work and time to, you know, especially if you're not like, how do I know that the accounts that I have in, in D are, are really still in D, even though I put them there, you know, like two or three months ago, I'd have especially to go and check the, five different softwares, speak right. to like a bunch of CSMs, listen to videos in Gong. Um, this is why I got so excited because like, it's, it's such a hassle to do, but at the same time, it's it's so to ensure that you're not wasting your time. I think it's also super interesting because to your point, like focus is super important. Therefore, we prioritize and map accounts. And let's say that we've done that, right? We've done that segmentation. We've done our understanding of the prioritization. But now basically what we've kind of said is that the accounts that are in D, we're not really paying attention to them, right? So, and maybe if especially the segmentation is agreed upon across the AM team and the CS team, maybe the CS team is also not really paying attention to them that much, right? So it's almost like a, I don't know, there's, there's a lot obviously that software can help with in terms of like picking up signals that maybe uh, folks have missed or picking up signals that otherwise would not be gotten to right but it's also just such an interesting kind of balance that you have to take on where if you literally relegate some accounts to okay well they're not really growing and you know they haven't spent that much with us so i won't focus my time just out of necessity that might mean that they will for like they will go further down in d right to e and f and see for churn the poor little d's are getting ignored <laughs> no, but at the same at the same time, it's like for the A accounts. Another thing, you know, Dale, you asked me at the beginning, like what were what are the things that I do um, to really help my team? Um, and I'd say one of the worst things that you can do as an account manager is to show up to a call with no context. Literally, the worst thing you can do, and you can't stay on top of context. You can't be on every call with every client, even with your A accounts. Things happen, you get bogged down in other stuff. I always strive for, especially if it's going to be a discovery call, the first slide that a client should see, and Masha, you know this well now, um, is here's what I know, here's what I don't know. Um, and this is especially important when you're doing a transition from 
uh, an account that maybe was in pre-sales and went through implementation and is now meeting, let's say, the success team for the first time. As a customer of software, there's nothing I hate more than coming into a call and a salesperson or account manager or a CS rep has no idea about what's going on and just starts asking me from the ground up, like, what, you know, who am I? What's going on? Why did I buy so-and-so product? Um, tell me a bit more about the business. You should have this information. So yeah, it, goals it, for it, it shows, it shows it sh fracture in the organization. It shows that there isn't information being passed along and you feel mm -hmm. less important or less meaningful as a customer when this happens. And so this is a microcosm of the issue that we're talking about, because if I can't very quickly speak to the people that actually know this information, find it somewhere, see it in a call and dissect it, then I'm on the back foot every single time. And my job is to build trust and empathy with my customers. And if I'm not on the ball all the time and putting in the extra effort to stay up to date, forget about if I can sell them something or not, I'm going to be seen as a salesperson. Mm -hmm. And that to me is, is the kiss of death. And you can get by doing that if you work for a company where the product is solid enough and you've got enough books, uh, companies in your book of business that like someone raises a hand and you go and sell them something. But if you want to build lasting relationships with your customers and if you want to grow them and retain them and really be you know, a top 1% salesperson at your company, you have to do that sort of like nuts and bolts approach. And if you don't have the tools and automation behind you to help you, it's it's an incredible, incredible manual effort. Right. So how would you say that AI could help you in this um, kind of alleviating this manual effort part? I mean, in, in every sense, because it's it's a matter of being in the places where I am not and updating the information that I need without me having to watch like uh, uh, glow stick is like a, even in its initial iteration, just having the feed of calls that I wasn't on. Okay. So, you know, we're talking about those D's that might be forgotten, right? Um, let's say you have a D account that might be on the cusp of that dividing line between C and D or even between D and B. And there was a QBR or a biweekly where all of a sudden there's a new stakeholder in place there is a change in the business. Um, there's a landmark purchase or acquisition that happens. And I wasn't there to hear it or to know about it. That is critical information that can completely change how I plan for that account and how I prioritize that account. And if it was with a CSM that I only share three accounts with, as opposed to 17, which is the CSM that I speak to every week, and maybe I don't have like a close enough relationship with this CSM, I can miss out on that information for months. And even if they raise their hand and they're like, we want to purchase something, um, I'm completely on the back foot. I haven't been around. I don't have any context to what's going on in the conversation. And I have to scramble to meet with the CSM to kind of get up to speed as fast as I can and introduce myself to the new stakeholders when they have no idea who I am or what I've been doing for the last year and a half that they've been working with the company. Um, having someone or something in the background that's going to keep you up to date on everything that's happening at every touch point and give you literal snippets of what they said and when and the context behind it without you having to scrub through hours of video, 
the more I can do myself with that information being fed to me, the more I can do to keep things updated. And then you take that a step further if you can apply that to very quickly update a white space map, which in then turn updates an account segmentation map. The speed at which this can happen in terms of that feedback loop, like what you're saying, Masha, that stops you from having to like, you know, take time every quarter to redo a whole bunch of account plans from the ground up and already miss some information that, you know, you might have been on the back foot from. And we live in a world where having a competitive advantage is very important. And people, especially in certain markets, they switch vendors like they switch clothes. And, and so you cannot afford to be late to the game. And you always have to be proactive in how you're thinking about the company and where they're at and what they need and what they don't need. Because if you're not, A, they're not getting the value that they need from you. B, you might have missed something that's critical to the renewal, let alone selling them even more. Um, and C, they might even be thinking we're looking at a competitor right now and not even telling you. Um, and so that layer of artificial intelligence that's catered to my business, our sales cycles, our products, and our triggers or red flags and green flags in conversations is invaluable. And worse, if they did mention some of those things, but you didn't, you didn't, you missed it, right? Like you, you mentioned being on the back foot. Um, we should button this up, but I wanted to share one interesting AI use case that I think uh, like it really inspired me, uh, Aaron, in our conversations when we were working through certain deals and you were kind of coaching me through it. And when you introduced me first to that uh, MedPick and the command of the message frameworks, right? I actually, I, I, how many people do this and I'm not sure, you know, you know, let's do your own research and use uh, at your own discretion. But I actually ended up taking, using chat like GPT and taking the framework that you gave me, like here are all the things that we need to think about and here are all the questions. And I fed it into chat and I asked chat to ask me <laughs> those questions to fill in the framework, right? Because it's a super interesting, I think this is the most fascinating portion now of human AI interaction here, and especially like seller AI interaction, where they have to be in these sales cycles that maybe they missed some context for, and they have to very quickly catch up. You can't, okay, so let's say, you know, you take AI and it summarizes a call for you, or even like Glowstick does, right? Pulls out some snippets for you, but you never take the time to review it and look at it and consume it and actually internalize it and therefore change your strategy. That's useless. Like that's as good as just not doing it. You might as well not do it, right? So I think that is the most interesting piece now that's going to happen where, yes, AI can do a lot of work for you in terms of surfacing signal and whether it can, you know, summarize and condense that signal and point you into good places, that's great. But now we as humans have to figure out still a way to consume that signal in the most sort of feasible manner, right? Because we also can't, there's only so much that we can take in. And so, you know, going back to our Dunbar number situation, like the conversation before, I don't know what the consumption number is, right? Like, yes, we can clearly scale our presence in a variety of conversations where we couldn't be in before, but how much and how is it realistic? Um, so, yeah, I think, I think you, you touched on something, which is what I was sort of thinking about the other night 
which as a manager and Dale, like back to your kind of like initial question, even me as a manager going to my rep and asking what's going on with this account is a failure on me to be proactive, to understand what's going on and to, to lead them in the right direction. And what I mean by that is the analysis portion of this, I think is, is huge where as a manager, if I could very quickly know that rep number one is spending 80% of her time on A accounts and X amount of time on B accounts. And this specific account, she, I know she's spending this amount of time and this is how many meetings she's had with them. And this has been the topic of the conversation. And it's aligning to the white space map that she's identified specific ops with. I can come to a one-on-one -on -one and be like, I like what you're doing with this. By the way, you're, there's an account here that I think you're, you're kind of like not uh, thinking about as much. Or Masha, to your point, I can analyze the approach that they're taking within the frameworks that we're trying to implement. Uh, I see from, you know, these, these analytics you're using MedPick great. I think your discovery calls could use X, Y, and Z because you're sort of missing these key questions that you should be asking. Being proactive, I think is, is really of the game in, in any aspect, whether an IC or a manager and having as much information as you can deliver to you passively, that's very much unique to the company that you work for by having a a system that is using AI to understand things in that level of nuance is, is invaluable. I think that the nature of being reactive is a poison, not just for ICs, but for managers. Um, and the more, especially as your book of business continues to grow, um, the more you can stay in front of it by having that sort of information at your disposal, the happier and more successful everyone's going to be. Amazing. I love this point. And Dale, I think maybe we just landed the topic of this conversation, which is like using AI to help you become more proactive, less reactive and less overwhelmed. Right. So I love the message here. Aaron, thank you for being with us. This was an awesome conversation. Really appreciated you coming on. And uh, yeah, we'll see you next time. See yeah, you my pleasure. Time. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Thanks, Aaron.